But we are continuing in the book of Hebrews, and we um, are in the book of, uh, in chapter 4. Now, of course, Jake um, <clears throat> journeyed into this um, book and, and went most of the way through it yet, uh, last week. Uh, we we're going to pick up the last few verses, but really, a lot of this chapter 4, we, we hear a word that's used quite a bit, and that is the word rest. And when we think of rest, what do you think of? <laughs> we tend to think of just sort of blobbing out, doing nothing, right? And that, that's, that's fair enough, you know, that's kind of what we often think of as rest. But when we, in the context here, and let's remember that the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to Jewish believers who were tempted and who were also drifting back into Judaism. And so they were moving away from that place of rest in Christ to a place of works and looking at how they could work for their righteousness, how they could do something in order to satisfy what they considered to be the requirements of God. But it didn't just stop there. There are many in that place today who, who have traded in that place of rest for a place of works. And they put themselves under some kind of burden or bondage or yoke that they have to perform in a certain way to earn their righteousness. And so rest, in the context of what's spoken of here, is resting in the completed work of Christ. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And the point is that the work that is needed to be done to unite or, or pave the way for sinful man to be reunited or brought into that relationship with the Holy God was completed by the death of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. And we rest in that. As we started the, the day off today, we come boldly to the throne of grace. We can only do that because we can rest in the completed work of Christ. We've been reminded of that uh, this morning as we've taken communion together. So I trust that that is where you're at this morning, that you are resting in the completed work of Christ. Um, not resting in the, in the sense of doing nothing, but resting in the fact that, that Christ has done it all. Now let's move forward in that knowledge and let us um, <clears throat> grow and mature and fulfill what God has called us to do. So that continues, uh, that, that sort of theme touches uh, in many ways through the book of, or through that chapter 4. And uh, so we're just going to pick up in the end of chapter 4 where Jake finished off in, is verse 14. Um, and we, um, <clears throat> we're really looking at the, the, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Now, of course, back in chapter 3, uh, verse 1, we have the... the, the, the the, the, uh, the verse, let us consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. And see, when we get to verse 14, uh, that thought sort of continues on. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, of course, the idea that Jesus is our high priest has been mentioned in numerous places in Hebrews. 
But now the writer here wants to develop this thought more extensively. And so the writer wants to call attention to the specific and unique character of Jesus as our high priest. And we might think, well, what's all that to do with anything? You know, we, we may not be familiar with the high priest, but remember, this is being written to a, in a Jewish context. And so the whole idea of a high priest was very much, you know, that's, that's their wave band. That's, they know all about that. They expect this. And so the high priest, that subject is, is very applicable. Uh, we can think of it and, and put it into our own context in some way. The writer wants to call attention to this. See, no other high priest was called great. No other high priest passed through the heavens. No other pre high priest is the Son of God. And so what the writer here is wanting to do is, is show that the high priest was great, but we have a greater and here we have the, the, uh, the superiority of Jesus uh, as it is being shown in numerous ways through the book of Hebrews. All of this in the context, remember, of those who are looking again favourably at going back into Judaism. They'd come out of that, they, they, they recognised Christ as their high priest, Christ as, as the one who had brought them that place of rest and, 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 and all that that meant now that they're, they're drifting back for various reasons, as we've touched on previously, looking back to the law, looking back to Judaism. And so seeing that we have this great high priest, not entered into the Holy of Holies, which was only a model of heaven, but has entered into heaven itself for us. This great high priest, let us hold fast to this confession, and that confession of Christ. <clears throat> a high priest appeals to the Jewish mind, of course, and understanding. And remember, you know, a high priest was a significant person, obviously, uh, in, in, in Judaism. But the point is, in verse 15, look how the thought is developed. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we have in Christ the high priest. He has passed into heaven for me to make intercession. But he's a sympathetic high priest because he understands my weakness. He understands uh, the weakness because he became a man. He experienced the temptations that man experiences. He knows the problems that we face. He knows our weakness and he can emphasise with me and with you. Now, his, the deity of, of Christ, of course, has been uh, documented back there in chapter 1. His compassionate uh, humanity has been demonstrated in, in chapter 2. It means that there is a high priest, Jesus, God the Son, enthroned in heaven, our high priest, who can and does know what we're going through, who can sympathise with our weakness. He's not so far removed that he doesn't understand what we go through. And so to the Greek mind, the primary attribute of, of, of God, or any God really, was comes under the word of apathia. And we can see the, what that word means in the English. It's essentially the inability to feel anything at all. That's how the Greeks sort of 
looked upon God. You know, it's just sort of distant, disconnected, can't feel anything. Many people look upon God a bit like that today. You know, not 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 sort of personal, but there's sort of this force out there that that they can't um, can't really know. That's how the Greeks looked. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus knows, he feels what we go through. Uh, the, work, the, the, the word for, for sympathise literally means to, to suffer along with. To sympathise means to, to really make that journey with someone. Now what makes the difference is that Jesus also added humanity to his deity. He came and lived among us. He came and lived as a man. God became a man and lived among us. John, John 1.14, and the word became flesh. Speaking about Jesus, and, and dwelt among us, John said. And we behold his glory. It means he, we saw, we were eyewitnesses. The glory as of the only Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's John talking about and giving testimony to Jesus. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, <clears throat> He who comes after me is preferred before me, because he was before me. And his fullness, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that. We don't want to go back to the law, you know, grace and truth come through Christ. It's sad to see people going back into the law to become legalistic when they have once been free. When you have been there and walked the same path with someone who is going through some challenge in life, whatever it might, might be, it makes all the difference to that person. Or when you are going through difficulty and trial to have someone come alongside you who has also journeyed on that same path. It's almost like an unspoken connection that you have when a person can say, hey, I know what it feels like. Often that's all that needs to be said. We have a high priest who fills that. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a powerful verse that is. Taken all this into account, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Now how can I ever come boldly to the throne of grace except through Jesus Christ? And that's the whole point. That's what the, the, the writer of Hebrews is, is emphasising over and over again in all sorts of different ways. That's right throughout the book, really, is that it's all focused on Christ and what he has done. I can't come to the throne of grace in any other way except through Jesus Christ. No one can come boldly to the throne of grace asking God to accept your works or to reward you for what you've done. Imagine coming along and saying, well, Lord, look what I've done for you this week. Now I'd like to receive my rewards today. <laughs> oh boy. I can only come to God through Jesus Christ. 
I don't dare come to God on my own, but through him I can come boldly because my great high priest understands my weakness. He was tempted like I am. That's why he is able to help me in my time of need, my time of temptation. So I come and I can come boldly to the throne of grace, not to the justice, you know, to that, that bar of justice of God, to receive the work's reward. I don't come to the paymaster to get my pay for the work I've done. And, and that's one of the problems we often have in, in trying to figure out how all this works because we, in, in the natural world we don't really see this much. We go to our job, we do our work, we go to the paymaster, he, he gives us our pay for what we've done. And we seek to sort of try and put that into the context of God. And it, and it gets a bit messed up in there and still people try to make that fit. I can only come to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done. That I may obtain mercy and find grace to help in my time of need. And so I approach God on the basis of his grace and mercy towards me, not on the basis of my works or my deserving. And because I approach God on that basis, I can come boldly. I can come boldly on the basis of his goodness and of his grace. And I can receive help. I can find grace to help in time of need because I'm coming on the basis of God's invitation to me. Now in our minds, and because we hold in our minds this concept of rewards and good for goodness and, and for good works, that we carry with us, don't we? We carry it with us from childhood. The whole idea, you know, hey, if you've been good today, then... Ooh, it might be ice cream for dessert tonight, you know. <laughs> it's instilled as a child, isn't it? Reward for goodness and punishment for bad. If you've been bad, well, no ice cream for you tonight, you know. Even Santa Claus makes out the list and checks it twice to see if you've been naughty or nice. And, and we, we, that's kind of the groove we get into, isn't it? And so it's hard for us to think outside of that in terms of, of grace, what that really means. We confuse it with wages and earning. But it's important that we come to God by virtue of his grace and not by the virtue of our merit or our goodness or our works. Because if I come by virtue of my goodness, then most of the time I can't come. I'd say all the time I can't come. I could never come by my, I could never be good enough to come to the throne. Then it's not a throne of grace, is it? But if I come by the virtue of God's grace, I can come anytime. One of the tricks of the enemy is to make you feel, well, you can't come back to God. Look what you've done. And he will try to force you and push you and, and, and disconnect you from coming to the throne of grace by dumping upon you condemnation. One of the biggest issues often uh, that people have is, is figuring out the difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction is something that will happen when, we, when we're convicted. We feel, well, gee, that wasn't right. And, and the whole idea is to, to bring you back to that place 
of restored fellowship, but condemnation will drive you further away. And condemnation is what the enemy will use to try and push us further away and, and get us to, to kind of think, well, I can't come to the throne of grace because I've been so bad, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm just a hopeless wreck. But that's no longer the throne of grace. You see, on the, if I come by on the virtue of my deserving, then, then, then I won't get anything because I don't deserve but if I come on the basis of his grace, then it's wide open. As David said, thank you, Lord, that you deal with me according to your grace and mercy and not according to my iniquities. He, he figured that out. He was far from perfect. God is indeed a merciful and gracious and compassionate God. He knows my needs and weaknesses. He sympathizes, empathizes with me and for me. So how are you going to approach God on the basis of your goodness and your efforts, your work or on the basis of the finished work of Christ because if it's going to be on, on, on your own works all that discussion previously in that chapter about rest you will never experience but if it's on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ then you can rest in that that, that is the completed work so here I am resting in this position because I'm not resting in myself or my own righteousness, I'm resting in his finished work for me. So I can come today not on the basis of I've had a good week and everything has been going well, but I'm coming on the basis that God indeed deals with me according to his love and mercy and grace. And you've also been invited to come to receive of that grace through Christ. We don't deserve it, but because of who God is, a God of love, a God who is gracious and a God who is merciful. Too often we fail to really believe that. Our faith in God and his grace can be sort of squashed because we have messed up either by doing something we should should have, or not doing something we should have, or, or by doing something we shouldn't have, and we fall back into the works-based view of God's involvement in our lives. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, of course, the subject of the, of the, uh, the high priest continues on as the author continues uh, to move along. Remember, the verses and, and chapter breaks were only put there for our convenience. So as the thought continues into the next chapter where we read this, um, let's read the first few verses. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in, in things pertaining to God. That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this he is required, <coughs> is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins, and no man takes this honour to himself, but he was called by God, just as Aaron was. And so here the writer touches on things that would be just second nature to the original recipients of this letter. Sometimes we've got to work a little bit harder to sort of understand everything about it. God established both the priesthood and the office of high priest back in the days of Moses, Exodus 28. And the writer to Hebrews summarises this. 
summarize the work of the high priest, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so the primary job of the high priest was to, uh, as it were, officiate either directly or indirectly through, through other priests, uh, sacrifices to the Lord. It reminds us that not every sacrifice was a blood atonement for sins. We have here gifts and sacrifices. Many of the ritual sacrifices were, were, were intended to be simple gifts to God, expressing thanks and desiring fellowship. You know, the high priest was more than just sort of a, a, a butcher, as it were, offering sacrifice, blood sacrifice. He had compassion on those who were ignorant, compassion on those who were going astray. He administered uh, sacrifices with a loving heart for the people. And in this ideal, the high priest had this compassion because he understood, because he also was subject to witness, and so that's uh, to, to weakness. And that, that's the point that the writer was trying to make here, that the, the high priest was just a man. You know, he, was, he wasn't sort of uh, superhuman. God made specific commands to help ensure that the high priest would minister with compassion. Uh, interesting that in, in the breastplate, the, all the stuff that, that they would wear... Uh, there was the stones, there were 12 stones engraved with the tribes of Israel. Uh, there, were, there were the shoulder straps, uh, the names of the tribes. Um, and the idea was that this would always be on the, you know, close to the heart and shoulders of the high priest. He was required as for the people, uh, so also for himself, to, to offer sacrifices for sins. He had to go through the ceremony himself. God made specific commands to help ensure the high priest would minister with awareness that he was also subject to weakness. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to sacrifice for himself first to remind himself that the nation he had, had to atone you know, for, make sacrifice for, just like the rest of the people, that he also had to cleanse himself and all the ceremonies that he had to go through. And... and from what we understand, you know, on that, on that day when the high priest would go into the most holy place, uh, he had to go through untold ceremonies to, to be able to go in there, otherwise God would strike him dead. And from what we understand, you know, he, he would wear bells on his clothing. So when he went in there, they could hear him moving around and doing his the things that he needed to do in there and if it all went silent then I guess something's gone wrong and he'd been struck dead because sin was found in him so the question then well who's going to go and get him so they tied a rope to his leg and if that happened they'd drag him back out so no one went in there because he himself was sinful of course <laughs> that was the high priest the human high priest. And the, and the point the writer is making, as he says here, no one takes this honour to himself, but he was called by God just as Aaron was. And of course the high priest was taken from the community of, of, of the people, but he wasn't chosen by God's people. He didn't have a, have a, a campaign and, and have, you know, take votes. As he says, no man took this honour to himself. The office of high priest was 
uh, was nothing to sort of campaign for. It was given by right of birth. It was chosen by God. It was an honour no man could take to himself. The priesthood and the high priest came from a specific line of descent. Uh, every, pro every priest, of course, came from Jacob, Abram's grandson, whose name was changed to Israel. Every priest came from Levi, one of Israel's 13 sons. God set the tribe of Levi apart as a tribe committed to his service and as representatives of the whole nation. Uh, we had fellows like Gershon, Kohath, Merari, were Levi's three sons. Each of these family lines had their own duties. Uh, some had care of, of the tabernacle screen, uh, the, the veil and curtains and so on. Some had the, uh, the furnishings, uh, some had the boards and the pillars and so forth. Uh, they weren't necessarily priests, but they were Levites. The priesthood came through Aaron, the brother of Moses. And so every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. You had to come through that line of, of the family of Aaron as well. So Aaron's family and their descendants made up the priests and the high priest, those able to serve in the tabernacle itself and to offer sacrifices. The high priest was generally the eldest son, except if they disqualified themselves, and, and some did, like, did do that, Nadab and Abihu, uh, one, one example. And so in this sense, the priesthood was not by popular or not by popular election, but chosen by God, not appointed by man. There were some instances where men presumed to act as priests. Uh, that didn't go too well, like Korah, uh, Saul, uh, Uzziah. And so we can't uh, take the honour of being our own priests. It's, it's a great arrogance to think we can approach God on our, on our own without a priest, but it is a great thing to think that we need any other priest other than Jesus Christ. That's where religion gets intertwined and messed up. To think that we need a human priest of some sort to, to mediate between man and God. Jesus Christ is our high priest. And so there's plenty of people who would love to fill that gap. And they call themselves all sorts of names. You know, it might be priest, it might be vicar, it might be Apostle, <laughs> bishop, whatever it could be. Name your, name your name, put it in there. Plenty of people who will put their name in there and say, hey, you know, you need to come to me uh, and, and I'll sort it out. You, you need to come to Christ. He's our high priest, um, not some other human. Now, there are offices within the church, there are positions, and obviously whatever, I mean, that, that can all assist. But Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is the mediator between God and man. That is the one uh, who mediates on our behalf. And the, the, the writer of Hebrews wants to make that really clear. That it's moved away from a, a human high priest, as significant as all that was. There was something now far superior so also Christ did not glorify himself in verse 6. So you see the thought continues on. He did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so touching on this, you see how he's building his case all the way through here. Touching on this idea of, of, of God selecting the high priest. God selected the high priest Jesus. 
And here he is, he's touching on it here. Remember the writer in the first instance, he's writing to these Jewish Christians. They understood all aspects of Judaism. They understood the details of the high priest. And so to appeal to them, the writer had to take them with him on this argument. You know, if you went to a, a Jewish person today, say a, a rabbinic Jew, and says, oh, Jesus is saviour. <laughs> Just stand back, you know. I mean, you, 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 it's just not going to work. And, and it's, it's a little bit like this. The writer of Hebrews had to take the people with him to, to, to show, to prove the, the, the pathway here that this is fulfilling all that uh, was required for a, uh, a high priest, in this case, Jesus. He had to show the logic behind it and how it complies with, not clashes against what they know. Jesus did not make himself high priest. Instead, just as much as Jesus was declared to be the son, he was also declared to be a priest forever. Psalm 110. It was easy to see why the priesthood of Jesus would be difficult for early Jewish Christians to really get their head around. This was a difficult thing. It was not from, he was not from the lineage of Aaron. Jesus claimed... Uh, nor practiced <clears throat> no special ministry in the temple he, he confronted the religious structure instead of joining it in Jesus' day the priesthood be, had become a corrupt institution of which Jesus spoke against the custom had become the high priest in those days through intrigue and, and politics amongst the corrupt priesthood Jesus' priesthood is unending. But no high priest descended from Aaron ever had a forever priesthood. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated that he was not a priest like Aaron who had to atone for his own sin first. The resurrection spoke of the fact that Jesus, as the, as the Father's Holy One, who bore the wrath of sinners, yet without becoming a sinner himself. And so you see the the parallel and the contrast. Hebrews 7 will develop more the, 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 this whole um, Melchizedek. Uh, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll wait till we get to chapter 7 to deal with that. Who in the days of his, of his flesh, verse 7, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. And so the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, you read about that. There was agony, wasn't there? He knew what it was like to struggle with the difficulty of obedience. What did he say? Father... If there's any other way, if there's any other way, let's do that. But your will be done. And so he willingly laid down his life, but you know, if there was any other way to achieve the, the, the result, let's, let's go that direction. But there wasn't. And so he, he obeyed the will of the Father. It doesn't mean to say that he necessarily enjoyed that. He, he understood and he experienced the pain and the suffering, the agony. 
And maybe it answers the, the question, well, how can Jesus know what I'm going through down here? How can Jesus up there in heaven know what I'm struggling with here? He knew what it was like, yet he obeyed perfectly. Jesus did not pass from disobedience to obedience, but rather he, he proved his obedience by laying down his will. Father, your will be done. He did not learn how to, obey, how to obey in that respect. He learned what is involved. Uh, and of course there's, there's many people who, will, who struggle with that concept. Can, can Jesus learn anything? Can God learn anything? Well, we know that, that, that God technically can't learn anything. But Jesus understood what it was to obey. He understood what it was to suffer because of obedience. The Bible never teaches that strong faith will keep a Christian from all suffering. Jesus surely is the ultimate example. In fact, according to Thessalonians, Christians are appointed to affliction. So that's <laughs> not always something we want to relish, is it? According to Acts 14, it is through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. In Romans 8, our current suffering is, a, is the prelude to, to further glory. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. So Jesus' experience of suffering makes him perfectly suited to be the author or the source or the cause of our salvation. And of course, there were those who don't want Jesus to be their, their author of salvation. They want to write their own book of salvation. Well, I think God's like this. I think this will happen. Well, no, you know, God's like this. God's this. God's that. And and they 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 write the story. But God's not reading it. Only Jesus can author your salvation. And notice the salvation is extended to all who obey Him. And in this sense, all who obey Him is used. Uh, for, for those who, who, who are believing on him, which simply assumes that believers will obey. With all of that, touching on different aspects, we go into an exhortation, is the next step, an exhortation to maturity. Beginning of verse 11 we read, and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so here the writer is, he, he's, he's touched on all these and he says it's, it's kind of hard to explain this because you've become dull of hearing. It explains why the writer doesn't go into the topic of Melchizedek right at this point. He will do. But he wants to address some other critical points uh, before going into more detailed topics such as their spiritual condition because it makes it hard to explain. He fears the discussion of Aaron and Melchizedek and Jesus will sound uh, just, just, will be just too much for his readers at this point. At the same time, he recognises this, says more about his dull hearers, 
in the message. And you can see how the, the, the logic of, of all we're discussing, or how it's written, uh, it's an argument that's put forward. It's building and building and building on different points. Being at dull of hearing is not a problem with the ears. That's an interesting point as we look at this. What is it to be dull of hearing? We naturally think, well, your hearing's gone, gone off a bit. You know, that's what dull of hearing is. And, and, and we might apply that to our own context. But that's not what it's talking about here. It's got nothing to do with not being able to hear. It's got something to do with the will, not wanting to hear. It's speaking about those who really are not interested in what God has to say. Not wanting to hear the word of God points to a genuine spiritual problem. Hard of hearing or dull of hearing. You know, we, we probably all have aspects that we're, in using this context, dull of hearing in our lives. I, I know I have one. I've probably got several. Uh, <clears throat> when it comes to things like computers, you already know that, don't you? Hey, I, you know, computers are great, and, and I use them for what I need to. But that's it. And and of course, what makes it, you know, doing any more than that? And I can learn more about computers if I wanted to. But here's the problem: I don't want to. And so it's a will issue, isn't it? You know, I would rather watch paint dry than really look at the intricacies of how fast your server works or whatever it is, you know, and your latest app or whatever. I mean, uh, great that it's there. I've got no problem with them. But for me, that's just not my cup of tea. And so we've all probably got things that, uh, that we can relate to what they're getting at here. We're hard of hearing. You know, it's not that I can't hear. It's just that... I don't want to hear. But it shouldn't be to do with the things of God. And that's what the writer is getting at. He's saying to these, these people, hey, some of you people I'm writing to here, you don't know and you don't want to know about the things of God. It's rather interesting that often that is what's behind people drifting into legalism. Because it's very easy to become legalistic. All you need is a rule book. All you need is a manual to follow. But we know we need e-manual. Yeah, but if you've got a manual to follow, you just turn the page, tick that one off, tick that one off, uh, and it's not really involving. Uh, just follow the system. Those who felt like giving up with, with Jesus were also, they were dull of hearing. The dullness usually comes first, then a desire to give up. You know, watch out when the word of God starts seeming dull to you. What do you do to get the word of God into your life? There's all sorts of ways to do that. There's all sorts of practical ways to approach that and, and, and to, to keep it alive, to keep it fresh, to, to change it around. Uh, sometimes just reading, um, taking time uh, to read a, a passage, a book, a, 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 a verse. Uh, if you've never read through the Bible, uh, hey, there's some, there's some examples here. There's plenty of these out on the back table. 
Uh, a one-year Bible plan? Hey, give that a shot. Uh, there's, there's another Bible reading challenge here. We've got some of these. This is for the New Testament in six months. Uh, all they are is just a schedule to read it. And, but the whole idea is just, these are just tools. Uh, it doesn't have to be a year. It could be two years. Whatever it is, just get the Word of God in. And sometimes we need some structure to do that. For the word of God is living and powerful, we read, would have read last week. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and as a discerner in thoughts and, and intents of the heart. So as the word of God is going in, these things are naturally happening. As, as it's washing over you, uh, as it's going in and through you, uh, these aspects will begin to have an effect. But if we become dull of hearing and, and stop that going in, that's the time to be concerned. Become, because they have become dull of hearing, notice the writer says. Become is the operative word there. It indicates that they didn't start out that way. They became that way. And, and we don't want to fool ourselves that, that, that we could never go the same direction. If you're human <laughs> and you're alive, uh, we all have the, the, um, the potential to become dull of hearing in the things that matter most. May we stay close to the heartbeat of Christ. Verse two, continue on in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you, ought, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And so according to the time they had been followers, they should have been more mature. That's the whole point of what, of what the writer is getting at here. It wasn't that they were unique people who would, would hold a, a particular role of teaching. Uh, the, the, in, in, in that sense that they should be you know, fulfilling that teaching position somewhere. Um, but it's a sense in which, hey, as, as believers, as you journey through your walk with Christ, um, you learn things that you can, you can pass on. And, and wherever level you're at, you know, we, we, we move forward. And, and that's sort of the, 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 the point that the writer is making here. And often we can really only master something after we have effectively taught it. But there's a contrast. Look at the rest of verse 12. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who, are, who by reason have use... Uh, reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Interesting what it says, you have come to need milk. It's an interesting thought. When a baby is born, and mothers, you'll be thankful for this, they have no teeth. <laughs> they grow teeth, and that's usually an indication that they want to eat something, right? <laughs> And so that's a natural thing. They move from only having milk uh, to then eating solids. They can still have milk, uh, but, but you know, they sort of move on. It's just a natural growth, isn't it? And so he's touching, the writer's touching on us and, and, and saying, but hey, you've come sort of back to now having to need milk again. He's not saying there's anything wrong with milk. It's just that it, the whole he's using this as an illustration of of, of, the, of maturity that's not happening. In fact, reversing back 
to sort of infancy. Milk is still okay, but not exclusively. Solids can now become part of the diet, and increasingly so, is, is the idea. And of course, milk corresponds to the, to the first principles of, of, the, of verse 12. Solid food is the, is the meter, meteor and material and, and, and moving forward in maturity. It isn't that milk is bad, uh, but these Christians should have added solid food to their diet. Peter reminds us, all that as newborn babes, he says, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You know, and that's one of the great things as, 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 a, as a child, as any living thing. We'll stay with mammals. You, they need milk. They need that mother's milk. And they grow healthy. Desire that. Yeah, we need the milk of the, of, of the word of God to, 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 uh, that we might grow thereby, as, as Peter says. We need to grow healthy with that. But it also is part of progressing to solids. In the language of the day, the sense of uh, saying he is a babe is for he who has become a babe. So you see, it's not a natural progression forward, it's, it's actually going against and backwards. You know, there's, there's, it's a natural thing and a great thing, isn't it, to see that a, a, a true babe in Christ and a, a, a new believer just consuming the word of God and, and, and growing and, and learning. But we don't want to see a, an arrested state of development, but a continued moving forward. There are, there are those who, who have become babes. There are those who... <clears throat> for whatever reason, seek to sort of go backwards and, and have a place of maturity but reverse back for various reasons. Who by reason, I'm talking about maturity, but who, the, who by reason have their use of their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so here is the point of progressing forward. Senses exercised, trained by practice and habit to discern good and evil, uh, particularly talking doctrinally here, um, that, that the exercise of, 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 um, of, of study, of, of the word of God going in, of, of these sort of things uh, is, is, is by practice and by habit is, is what's touched on here. Our senses being exercised by reason of use. When we decide to use discernment, we mature is, is a natural thought here. And so there were those who demonstrated immaturity by their lack of discernment between good and evil. And in the, in the context that related to the contemplation of giving up with Jesus and drifting back into Judaism. The mature Christian is surely marked by discernment by their unshakable commitment to Christ. The ability to discern is a critical measure of spiritual maturity. You know, a baby will put anything into their mouths, won't they? You know, you can spend all day vacuuming in the house and, and there might be one little fly that hasn't been vacuumed up and it could be right over there underneath that 
plant. And that little baby will come into that room and like a heat-seeking missile will just find its way straight to that fly and pick it up before you could even get there. That might be the only fly in the whole district, but that little baby will find it. And that's what they're like, isn't it? A baby will just come and pick up that little thing and eat it. It's got no discernment. Kind of sad when that baby might be 20 years old and still doing the same thing. <laughs> that's the point that the... Uh, Rider is trying to make here. So once they get sort of down the track a bit, that discernment should kick in. You know, spiritually should be the same. There's plenty of things that will try to suck you in. There's all sorts of stuff that will will, will um, that, that gets endorsed and embraced and, and and swallowed because there's no discernment. Babes are weak in discernment will accept any kind of spiritual food. We have a spiritual sense of taste. It's rather interesting. Um, the senses exercised. You know, it can be said that the, the, the human senses have their spiritual counterpart. A bit like the, taste, the sense of taste. If, we, if indeed you have tasted that which... That the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2, 3. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What about hearing? Hear and your soul shall live. Isaiah 50, 55. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, we read in Revelation. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. What about smell? Well, <laughs> he shall be quick, he shall be of quick scent in the fear of the Lord. <laughs> a kind of interesting thought, isn't it? I am full having received from you a sweet smelling aroma. What about feeling of touch? Touch your feeling because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord. The hardening of the heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to licentiousness. And so there's kind of similar, similar parallels, isn't there? What's the best way to spot a counterfeit? Become familiar with the real thing. There's no other, other way around it. People get sucked into all sorts of strange stuff and, and there is so much weird and wacky um, <coughs> doctrines, positions and, and, and so on sweeping through the church continually. <coughs> People getting dragged off because they can't identify the counterfeit. The best way to identify the, the counterfeit is not to study the counterfeit but to study the real thing. Those who are skilled in, in picking out um, uh, counterfeit banknotes spend their time handling the, bank, the real stuff looking at it, handling it, just spending their time with it. As soon as something that's um, a bit off base comes along, they can clearly identify it. We need to be doing the same. Growing in the word will give you discernment. You can immediately begin to sense, to know some of these sort of milky kind of uh, doctrinal things that come and go. See them as fraud. See them as a bit like whipped cream, not nourishing. Sure, there might be some stuff that tastes like candy floss, but um, it leaves no substance. Good news is there is practical advice. And um, <clears throat> just wanted to read this verse or two out of um, 
You might want to read the whole of Psalm 119 because, 19 because it speaks about, it's in praise of, of the word of God. But just a few verses from Psalm 119 to conclude on. Um, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. You know, how can we get our, our, the right thinking into our hearts? Verse 10, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not, that I might not sin against you. Hide the word of God in our hearts. Let it find its way in. Let it take up residency. Let it continually wash over us. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your, in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The person who does that is, 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 is the one who's not going to become or not the one who is dull of hearing. Let us take that on board. Let the word of God sink deeply into our hearts. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. As we just reminded as we journey through this little piece of, of Hebrews today uh, and all that it means, Lord, may we just be able to apply that to our lives today. How easy it is to become dull of hearing to the things that really matter the most. We think of the context where those who were drifting away from the rest they had found in Christ and, and the blessing of that to a place of, of unrest, to the place of a reversal of, of growth and maturity, to a place where, where they were worse off in their spiritual growth than where they had been before. But Lord, we thank you wherever we are today you have a way forward for us may we be hungry for the things of God may you create that hunger in our hearts and Lord I pray for each one of us that we would not think that we are above and beyond falling in this way as, as those Hebrew believers were but may we take stock of our lives and with openness and, and uh, clearness of heart and thought and mind. May we have ears to hear and hearts to receive your message to us today. So Father, I just pray for each one of us, Lord. May you lead us forward. May we rejoice that we can indeed come to you. We can come to the throne of grace. We can come boldly because of the work of Christ. May we rejoice in that today. And may it find its way in and through our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we, and just uh, conclude in worship. And uh, perhaps as, as we do that, maybe this, it's just a time of, of just quiet meditation, even as you're singing, and reflection. Uh, perhaps there was just a need to express your thoughts to God. Uh, and uh, let's just take this moment as we worship to, and conclude the service. Thank you.